If you have your Bible with you and you want to follow along there, please open to Matthew, the 21st chapter. Um, the title of today's message is Reimagining Conquest, and we're going to be looking at the scene which, uh, about which we celebrate Palm Sunday. Um, and so if you would uh, join me in reading from Matthew 21, we'll begin in verse 1. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and uh, at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, The Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to, the, uh, to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed them on the road uh, uh, shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was, was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And then jumping down to verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us uh, a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better, that you would open our eyes to see things as they really are, as you see them, from your divine per perspective and by faith to walk in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Richard Cohn once chief historian of the U.S. Air Force, explains that in the early days, people just didn't understand air power. He, he recounts a story. He says, I remember one congressman being quoted as saying, why do we have all this controversy over airplanes? Why don't we just buy one of them and let the services share it? Yeah, looking at that from our place in history, we laugh. How could they not see the potential of airplanes? But that's just it. They could not see the potential of the airplane. Imagine you had never seen an airplane. This is what you had. This is what you're being asked to buy for the military. You might wonder what value it would bring to the military. And understandably so. You would have to have a different kind of imagination if you're going to understand its value 
in the future for the Air Force, which, of course, didn't even exist at that time. <laughs> you could not have seen and imagined future fighter jets, cargo jet bombers, or cargo jets or bombers. So buying one of these for the services to share, that itself would be innovative and, you know, you'd be ahead of the game, so to speak. The few visionaries that could imagine something different had to persevere. On Palm Sunday, we commemorate an event intended to shake our imaginations, to hopefully transform our imaginations. There's a reason that this scene that we celebrate today is actually mentioned in all four Gospels. Uh, Surprisingly, there are not a ton of things that are in all four of the Gospels, especially, of course, John being so different than the others. You've got the feeding of 5,000. That shows up in all four Gospels. But another thing that shows up in all four Gospels is this event that we commemorate today. So it is significant in um, the, the church's life to think and contemplate that event. Jesus, like the prophets of Israel before him, was acting out a sign, a visual, if you will, with the desire that it would reach crowds at the level of their imaginations. Not just the original crowd, but every crowd that has heard that story ever since. It's recorded in the gospel so that it might reach us in our imaginations. Because until we can imagine a different kind of life, a different kind of living, a different kind of king, a different kind of kingdom... We cannot possibly begin to live that different life. The problem is we're mostly like the congressman who suggested they buy one airplane for the services to share. We can't imagine what Christ envisions. This morning we're going to consider the meaning of this sign and the transforming effect it is supposed to have on our imaginations, on, therefore, our lives. We will explore this under three headings. First, reimagining royalty, then reimagining battle, and finally reimagining victory. Let's begin under that first heading, reimagining royalty. Jesus is king. The picture of Jesus riding on a colt, barely old enough to ride, is a bit of a red herring. In other words, it communicates the kingship of Jesus such that one might expect that the next thing he will do is to overthrow Rome. But in reality, taking the whole scene, taking it all in, he will do no such thing, at least not the way we think of overthrow. In Israel's history, kings and donkeys um, had an interesting relationship. There was meaning behind kings and donkeys and their being together. I referred to one of them earlier in, in our time at communion. I'll look at that again, but I'll begin in Judges, and I'm not hitting all of the places where we see this. I'm just hitting some highlights to help you get the picture. But in Judges, a time before Israel had kings, there were numerous uh, judges, as they called them, leaders, deliverers, whose children, as the the, the deliverer was serving, their their children sought to set themselves up as kings because they wanted to kind of increase the power and and go forward uh, with it. And so that was always a temptation. We read of Jair of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years and had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys and controlled 30 towns in Gilead. The implication is that they were running those towns like kings. 
That's why donkeys are mentioned there. It's a bit of an oddity to us. It's a cultural strange thing for us. So we don't necessarily pick that up. Think about Saul. He was anointed king while he was out looking for lost donkeys. Samuel finds him looking for lost donkeys and anoints him as king. And then after the Lord rejected Saul as king and, 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 and had Samuel anoint David as king, in the very next scene, David's father puts uh, David on a colt loaded with supplies of bread and wine and sends him to the capital city. He is God's king legitimately, but the future king as far as the world counts time. Next is the story in 1 Kings 1 regarding which son of David would follow him as king. And this one's significant because I think it plays strongly into the scene that we have that we're celebrating today. David's on his deathbed, and Adonijah, that's his son, he puts himself forward as king saying, I will be king! And he had every right to do so. He was Uh, second after Absalom as the son of David. And of course, Absalom's now dead and gone. You probably know the story there. And he was also strikingly handsome. So by all rights, he's the heir to the throne. And never mind that he was the son of, uh, well, what we might call a little bit more legitimate wife than Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. And he... He was also the kid his father never said no to. You know, that one that gets away with everything. He's constantly indulged. And he gives quite a a convincing display of power. We read this in uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 1. He says, So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. That's his inauguration to the throne. Chariots, horses, 50 men, armed obviously, running before me. That's a display of power. That's a king. Uh, No humble donkey there, appropriate only for ruling over a poor community, would be a donkey of agrarian Israelites constantly under attack. The king offers world-class power. Adonijah, he represents a whole new level of power in their minds with his chariots and horses. Now, Solomon, the one David had promised to be king, the king of promise, if you will, was not invited to the festivities for Adonijah, needless to say, because he's soon going to be killed by Adonijah's men. uh, Because, of course, he is the legitimate heir because David had said so. Um, But Bathsheba gets word of the festivities and makes her way to David, and he intervenes. He says, call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and uh, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. And, And when they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's servants and with you, and have Solomon, my son, mount my own mule. Now, mule's interesting, isn't it? Mule, what, where's a mule fit in? Well, mule's half donkey, half horse. And just like Solomon, he's God's chosen king, and yet his reign is a lot like God's kingdom and a whole lot like worldly kingdoms. It's a mixture of things. It's uh, totally mixed. And so it's an interesting story in and of itself. But he, take my own mule and take him down to Gihon there, Have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon! Then you're to go up with him, and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my uh, place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. Now Solomon wasn't the ultimate son of David who would rule over his people, but he did point forward to the one to come. 
Jesus in enacting this sign by, by getting this uh, donkey, the foal of another donkey, and riding into Jerusalem on it. He was declaring, certainly, that he was the true king of Israel. True in every sense of the word. But he's also turning their whole idea of kingship, of royalty, upside down. Fast forward a thousand years from Solomon to Jesus and the Roman occupation. The kind of military might that accompanied royalty had advanced as much as airplanes have advanced today from, say, the flimsy biplane that we saw, Wright's biplane that was the first plane they were looking at buying. Um, To rise up as king against Rome would require the equivalent of a whole squadron of fighter jets, a few B-52s and stealth bombers, all in parade as they enter Jerusalem. That's what you would want to put on display against Rome, as it were. Uh, Instead, Jesus comes in with, uh, as it were, a parade with that biplane in front. We're going to take the world! You're not going to get the world, buddy. It's just not going to happen. We've all seen the imagery of Kim Jong-un and the parades of display of North Korea's military might that he shows. I mean, nuclear weapons, missiles, I mean, planes will be in that, uh, anti-aircraft artillery will be in that parade. It's a declaration of power. Imagine if Kim Jong-un, his parade was a few of Wright's military biplanes, old school cannons and soldiers with swords on horses. Probably wouldn't have quite the impression on his people that he could squash whatever rebellion they might think up. Jesus, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey colt, was in their day the equivalent of doing just that. It was at one and the same time a declaration of his rule and an embarrassing show of weakness, or at least embarrassing on a human scale, the way we count things. Imagine being brought into a room of of military decision makers at the Pentagon and asked whether the Air Force should order right biplanes. I mean, a whole squadron of them. Only a fool would say yes in the way we think. But that is the very point. They asked, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. It's not children because children are innocent and pure and so they can see the right thing to do. No, that's not how the old world thought of children. Children were simply fools. And that's why it's children. You see these fools and what they're doing? And Jesus says, yes, uh, isn't it from fools like this that you have called forth praise? And of course, like us, right? It was the fools of society that understood. The blind, the lame, we are told, were there, the little children. They were the only ones who could still imagine the world rightly because they hadn't bought into the imagination of the world they lived in. It did nothing for them. You see, the blind, the lame, and the children hadn't so written into their minds what things really were like in the wrong way, like the rest of us have, because, well, we're adults now. They could still see it differently. And oh, how vital that is. Has anyone here seen, it's an older movie, A&E, the Scarlet Pimpernel. 
Yeah, okay, we've got some fans, Scarlet Pimpernel fans. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Scarlet Pimpernel. If you haven't seen it, you should. Just going to say, you should see it. The, the people in Jesus' time expected a king that would come more like how we would envision, say, a Bruce Willis-type character from Die Hard. With all this power and force, but instead, when Jesus comes riding on that young donkey, they, they get the Scarlet Pimpernel. A fop as fragile as a little flower. The, the fictitious Scarlet Pimpernel was the codename for a man who convincingly acted the fool in order to rescue people from the reign of terror. No one ever expected, uh, suspected him as the rescuer because he was such a fool. And that's how he got away with everything he did. This is your king. But to understand that, you have to totally reimagine royalty. Completely rethink what you think about royalty and power and kings, everything related to it. And that leads to our second point, which our heading is reimagining battle. Reimagining battle. I want to read verses 4 and 5 again from our text. Where Matthew tells us this this event took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet... Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What Matthew does here is actually common among New Testament authors, like Paul, who does it regularly, for instance, and other authors in the New Testament do it. And what he did is he takes a line from one verse in the Old Testament, in this case out of Isaiah, and just writes it right into a verse out of uh, Zechariah. As if that's how it was found. And it's, you know, we look at it and go, wait a minute, how'd you do that? That's foul play. They would have never thought that was foul play. They just, that's common practice. That's what you do. When you're trying to tie ideas together, you just do that. And they were cool with that. So, you know, we just have to relax a little. Most of this quote, of course, is directly from Zechariah 9.9. However, that verse begins differently. It begins, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout Daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, dot, dot, dot. Matthew instead introduces it with, say to the daughter of Zion. Now one might assume that Matthew is simply, uh, or just simplifying the beginning of the Zechariah quote, which of course would be out of character for him. Why simplify it on the one hand? Uh, But it's not what he was actually doing. Uh, if the, the line is straight out of Isaiah 62, 11. If you look at that text a little more closely, you'll see that there are striking parallels between the two texts. Where Zechariah's next words are, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isaiah follows that line with, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. One verse later, Isaiah's description is about one who comes to save, whose garments are crimson red, stained with the blood of his people, who apparently were trampled in his wrath. Not quite the scene you get with the donkey ride, is it? More like the scene you get with the nuclear weapons. You know, the the mighty war horses. Little different scene. But, But here's what Matthew is doing. What Paul often does as well. 
He's taking the introductory line from Isaiah and connecting it to Zechariah. Matthew is saying, this that you read in Isaiah, it's actually that. If you want to understand what this is, you need to look at that. This is that. This triumphant conqueror who tramples down those who disobey him that Isaiah speaks of is really the humble king who comes riding on a donkey. That's how you're going to be saved. Allow me, can I invite you to use your imagination with me for a moment? Just, just try to imagine this happening for you. you. You get invited to a room where you and Jesus are going to put to, uh, together a puzzle. The box is on the table when you arrive in the middle of the room. The cover scene is of generals and soldiers in battle, blood splattered everywhere. People fallen, slain, enemies wailing. The face of the victor is fierce. Jesus empties the box contents onto the table, and you begin putting it together. Now, like me, if you're anything like me, first thing you do is grab the puzzle lid because you need to look at the picture to see what it is that you're creating. And so you start looking for pieces that fit certain parts. And so you do that. And you find pieces and begin lining them up and putting together a sword. And you've also got one of the bloody victims starting to be assembled. And after a moment, you realize you've been hogging the box and haven't offered Jesus to use the box. And surely he would want to use the picture on the box to make the puzzle, of course. But he waves you off, indicating that he doesn't need the picture. Then you notice something strange. He's putting it together differently. He's using the same pieces, but the picture he is creating is entirely different. Fascinated by this, you stop working on the puzzle and just watch Jesus, kind of unaware that you've ceased helping. Eventually, he reaches over and takes your pieces, disassembles them, and places them into what he's been doing. When he's finished, the puzzle is not the war scene that was on the front of the box, but rather a peaceful scene with a shepherd and a donkey, or on a donkey rather than a war horse. Sometimes you can read the New Testament and it's as if the New Testament authors have taken the Old Testament scriptures, taken all the words apart and put them back together to tell a new story. As if the thing we thought the Old Testament was about wasn't quite right and the authors of the New Testament help us to reimagine it in an entirely new way. It's the only way you can Take the words of condemnation for every sin we've ever committed that perpetually tell us that we need to die and somehow you retell the story so it says you have eternal life. We have to reimagine warfare. Malcolm Gladwell in his book, The Bomber Mafia, tells us the three most expensive projects for the U.S. Defense Department during World War II. Three most expensive projects, all of World War II. The most expensive was the B-29 Superfortress bomber. That was a beast, and that was a lot of money. The second most expensive was the Manhattan Project, the massive effort to invent and build the world's first atomic bomb. Any idea what the third was? I'll tell you, don't worry. (laughs) Not a weapon or a plane, not a tank or gun, not even a ship. It was the Norden Bombsite, a 55-pound analog computer designed by Carl Norden. 
I'm sure you would not have guessed that because, of course, who's heard of a Norden bomb site unless you're a you know, history geek about airplanes in the Air Force? Gladwell asks this, why spend so much on a bomb site? Because the Norden represented a dream. One of the most powerful dreams in the history of warfare. I'm going to suggest that the original scene with Jesus marching on, or, or coming into Jerusalem on that donkey colt, that that was the most powerful dream in the history of warfare. But I'll allow that this might be second, okay? If we could drop bombs into pickle barrels, he, he continues, from 30,000 feet, we wouldn't need armies anymore. And that was Norden's claim. If we get this right, we'll be able to fly at 30,000 feet where nobody can touch us, and we can drop bombs not to kill neighborhoods and wipe them out. No, we can drop bombs in a pickle barrel to get exactly what we want. We wouldn't need armies anymore. We wouldn't need to leave young men dead on battlefields or lay waste to entire cities. We could reinvent war, make it precise and quick and almost bloodless, almost They reimagined war. They were labeled the bomber mafia, not as a compliment, but as a dig. They rather liked the epithet, though. In the short run, the project was a failure. This little thing called the jet stream over Tokyo, virtually unheard of, messed up all their settings. They couldn't drop bombs onto football fields, much less into pickle barrels. The general directing the bomber squadron stationed in the Mariana Islands was relieved of his duties and replaced with a man whose philosophy was kill them all, men, women, and children. It didn't matter. And in, the matter of, in a matter of six months, 67 Japanese cities were laid waste with carpet firebombing using newly developed napalm. For General Curtis Lee May, who led that charge, the two atom bombs were superfluous, utterly needless in his mind. In the long run, the bomber mafia's philosophy has won the day. Today we've got computer-guided missiles and drones. The Norden bombsite is like Wright's military biplane. But without it, they never would have imagined a new way to conduct war. It had to start somewhere. Now that story is about a change in warfare in terms of the number of those killed. But it is still fundamentally the same kind of war. What Jesus is helping us to reimagine is moving from doing war by spilling the blood of others to doing war by loving our enemies. That's radical. That's completely reimagined. Giving to those who ask of us and praying for our persecutors, not resisting an evil person, And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Or as Paul put it, it, uh, we do battle in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. In other words, we all play the Scarlet Pimpernel. This isn't how you win wars. This isn't how you win the fight with your spouse, for that matter, much less a nation. What are you thinking about? 
Jesus has taken the puzzle pieces of our imagination of hostility, war, and enemies. He's disassembled them in his death and resurrection and is creating a whole new picture in himself. Jesus, his ride into Jerusalem on the donkey colt calls us to reimagine battle the way he does as the Prince of Peace. And that leads to our third heading, reimagining victory. Reimagining victory. You might wonder what any of this has to do with you. And I'm going to say much in every way. Most of us won't need to make decisions about combat and how it will be waged in the arena of nations. But the truth is, we wage battle in various ways every day. More often than not, because we have not fully reimagined how to do battle, myself included, by the way, we continue to wage war with mere variations of fleshly battle. We are choosing between napalm and guided missiles. But we are not choosing to follow the king who got on a donkey colt and rode into the face of Jewish and Roman power in a symbolic act declaring, I am king. No weapons in hand as far as we could see. And when one of his disciples, still not understanding, slices off one of the approaching enemy's ears with a sword, Jesus picks it up and puts it back on, healing his enemy. Listen, everything we do, everything, whether watching a baseball game, which, by the way, um, how about those rays? Sorry for my Tiger fans back here, just sorry, you know, about that, but anyway, (laughs) uh, but whether it's watching a baseball game or doing our job, or responding to our spouse or children. Everything we do presupposes some theory of reality, some vision of how the world works. How we engage anything is based on how we think the world is and how we think it works. Sadly, we are all hardwired to think that doing battle, whether with napalm or guided missiles, angry outbursts or passive-aggressive comments, Attack or defense is how it works. Hardwired as if someone took our original wiring and reworked it in a distorted way. We have to be rewired back to the image of God fully. The problem is, this hardwiring is not how the world really works. Not the world as God created it, nor how the new creation which is coming down out of heaven from God works. And we are now new creation, if we are in Christ, and must learn how to function in new creation ways. Amen? Any any set of practices out of alignment with the new reality of the new creation will not be fruitful or successful, only destructive. I'm going to say that again. Any set of practices out of alignment with the new reality of the new creation will not be fruitful or successful, only destructive. If we are going to successfully make this change, we must reimagine royalty, reimagine how battle is done, you know, with weapons of love and righteousness, and reimagine what victory looks like in the already not yet world. What does victory look like in the provisional kingdom? Remember the provisional kingdom we talked about? We've been been reminding you of that since we talked about it several weeks ago now. Jesus is the one who is appointed king in Luke 
19, the people are anticipating that the kingdom of God is going to appear right away. And he says, oh, hang on a second. And he tells him a story about somebody being sent away on a long journey to be appointed king. And then he'll return. And in the meantime, his agents are given resources with which to function and act in the world as if he is king. And when he returns, he'll decide whether they really believed in his kingship or not based on how they were using the resources he gave them. He was provisional king and would one day be the proclaimed king by all. And Jesus has, of course, gone on that long journey. Now, we know he's really seated at the right hand of God and ruling over everything in heaven and on earth. But down here, it still appears like the old king reigns, right? And so Jesus will come one day and it'll all be settled. But how do we live in this provisional kingdom? How do we live in the meantime? It's costly. To live that way. Paul describes what this victory looked like for him. Right after that list of the weapons of righteousness that we read earlier from 2 Corinthians 6, he adds this. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known and yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Victory, this side of his return, is in part, isn't it? In part, through glory and dishonor. Bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, that's in part. It's variegated. Poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. That is reimagined victory. Paul understands that we are more than conquerors living a life that looks like that because he's reimagined victory. The problem in our relationships is we have the hardest time reimagining victory. We, we just think that victory means I get my way. And until we get our way, we keep fighting. <laughs> And using the tactics of the old hardwiring. We have to reimagine victory. We have to reimagine the warfare that gets us there. We have to reimagine what our king, who our king is and what that's all about. We have to reimagine the whole kit and caboodle. Until we reimagine victory to look like that, like Paul described, we will continually be discouraged thinking that we are being defeated when in fact we are being triumphant. Talk about some specifics. With your spouse. When you are patient, kind, truthful, loving, even when you would rather get your way, you are doing battle the way Christ calls you to. And I could spend a whole sermon on each of these. I, I get that I'm, I'm not touching every aspect, but just want to plant seeds and thoughts that there's a different way of doing things. With your, when, when your teenager balks at your directive... When rather than standing merely on your own authority, you instead have understanding and pure speech. You're doing battle in a way that will win the war, though it will often look like you haven't done anything. Your head, the voice inside your head, I mean, or your spouse may yell, Do something! But doing the right something will not fix your teenager. 
it will win the day. Uh, what, what you're doing now, the right something, is, will win the day in the long run, but it may look like failure in the meantime. When you are overlooked in a promotion at work, which you deserved, and you return good for evil, it may look like you're letting them walk all over you, but you are, in fact, fighting the good fight of faith. When you decide to keep driving your older car in order to live on a smaller portion of your income so you can give to those in need, you're victorious. Your bank retirement account may not be growing rapidly, but your net worth is, in God's eyes, your triumphant commander in God's army. Coming at it a different way, from Isaiah 58, we might ask, what does victory look like? And I would say there we learn that it looks like this, to loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them, to do away with the yoke of oppression and the pointing of the finger and malicious talk, to spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and uh, satisfy the needs of the oppressed. For the Lord will guide you always and satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. For him to, it looks like the Lord to strengthen your frame as you do those things above and make you like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. In order to, in order to have a gospel culture, we have to reimagine the concept of rulership such that servanthood corresponds. Reimagine our Understanding of how we do battle with love, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And reimagine what victory looks like so that in a sun-scorched land we are well watered. A couple of thoughts to close this. Like carpet bombing, our natural hardwired way of doing battle wreaks a, a lot of destruction in the lives of those we love. But doing kindness, acting in love, bearing with one another's faults, and forgiving what others have done to you is like dropping a 300-pound bomb in a pickle barrel, all stealth-like, right where the real issue lies. Does it always work? Whatever that means. (laughs) Does it always work in the present? No. We're in an already-not-yet world. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But in the best cases, you've hit the source of their artillery and they won't be launching any more at you. We can rejoice in that. As you came in this morning, the palm branches, hopefully, created a visual that already began opening your eyes to see things differently. May the message which Jesus symbolized in that ride on the young donkey help us Reimagine royalty, reimagine conflict, reimagine victory. As a church, we must allow Jesus' message about God's reign to shape our imaginations into conformity with God's perspective on how to live as His image bearers in order that we might see how to live as a witness, a testament to God's reign, His kingdom. That we'd have a true gospel witness. It's no coincidence that this visual sign, this enactment of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, is done 
at the beginning of the Passion Week, leading up to Easter. If you think that donkey ride calls for uh, transformation of the imagination, and it certainly does, Easter calls us to reimagine everything. Everything. And so we'll be looking at that as we consider the resurrection next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our minds, open our hearts to understand, to to really shatter the way we imagine the world as it really works and replace it with Christ's way of doing things. And help us to begin living in it more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.